morning. All right, provocative title for the day. This is the world's first Pokemon battle. And as we're going into the story of Moses, some of you guys might be able to predict what the Pokemon battle was. Um, we're going to continue on with our Sunday School, the rest of the story series. So we, we got a nice introduction to Moses, and then... Um, we went with Moses out into the desert. We last left him. He had had his encounter with Yahweh in the burning bush. And uh, so he's there. Um, so just getting back into Exodus to just sum it up. It's been, I think it's been since like the last week of November. So this is cutting in and out, which is strange. Okay. But it's fully green. Um, So the one thing I want to point out, the beginning of Exodus starts with Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh does not know Joseph. And Pharaoh decides that these Hebrews are getting too numerous and too powerful, and it's time to do something about them. And boy, doesn't that sound familiar. Um, I just want to point out that this was the beginning of that first anti-Semitic conspiracy. And so this is the same thing we hear repeated through history, those Hebrews are multiplying like rats. They're starting to get into places of power, and we can't trust them. But this was 4,000 years ago. So just a reminder that what we see today on the news is nothing new. And uh, it's a scheme. We're going to look at schemes today. We're going to, today's going to, we're going to get into spiritual warfare a little bit as far as what spiritual warfare is looking like in the spirit realm, what it's looking like in the physical realm. And there's plots that the darkness uses that have been there forever. And uh, anti-Semitism is one of them that has existed since the beginning. So just wanted to put that in there. Moses fled Egypt because he killed the taskmaster. He was out there. He had an anger issue and uh, could not control himself. He killed the taskmaster, flees into the desert, leaves his life of comfort in the palace, takes off. Uh, He gets to this well and... uh, He impresses the ladies at the well. He does something to save the ladies from these other bad shepherds coming in. And uh, we get to see hero Moses, and he ends up marrying one of those ladies. Uh, He then goes on to attend what I like to call the Wilderness Leadership Academy for four years. He is in the wilderness, and he is doing what God is having him do. And I'm guessing there's some refinement on Moses' character in the wilderness. Um, He is shepherding. So he is taking care of animals after he spent his whole life living in a palace, highly educated. Uh, Based on what we know of the time period, he would have probably led, um, he would have been a general of some kind. And uh, some people believe he he did, if the the timelines are right, because remember we talked, there's two different timelines people give for, for Egypt. There's a chance that Moses was a commander taking care of problems in Ethiopia for a time in his life, which is interesting to think about. We don't think about that with Moses. Um, so while he's out shepherding, he comes across a burning bush. Uh, the burning bush is not burning, but it is burning. The fire is there, and uh, the Bible says that it, there's two figures in the bush. There seems to be two figures in the bush, which we kind of talked about. Uh, it's another pre-incarnate Christ and Yahweh. Both there through the bush. Um, Yahweh introduces himself and gives Moses directions. 
Moses whines a whole lot to God about everything that he can think to whine about. He must have gotten pretty comfortable comfortable back in the desert. Doesn't really want to go back to that Egypt life. Probably a little fear there. Um, he finally submits and he goes into the desert to travel back. He meets up with his brother Aaron and they head back to Egypt. They get to Egypt. Um, they speak with the elders of Israel and they do signs and wonders and the elders believe their plan. Um, one thing I'm going to try to do as we go through the Bible is I want you to think about these themes over the next uh, two more weeks after this week. Um, things that just kind of take home lessons, because sometimes it gets really, we get into the depth, and we're going to get into the verses. But these are themes to keep in mind as we go through. Speak Yahweh's truth. We're all called to speak Yahweh's truth. Um, loyalty to Jesus is expressed in obedience and action. Um, we don't need to get into like works and faith and how all that stuff plays out. That's its own thing. But what we see from the very beginning is when Yahweh asks you to do something, you do something, and that is obedience, that is loyalty. It's just how it is. Um, spiritual warfare is a multi-layered event. Um, darkness uses tried-and-true similar game plans consistently. All supernatural power derives from spiritual beings. We're going to talk about this today because as you study this stuff and as you hear this stuff um, growing up, depending on what churches you go to, they equate this stuff to just parlor tricks that people that like illusionists do. But we see this all the way through the Bible that we take it seriously because there's, there's real stuff behind everything. Um, a human aligned with darkness can be a willing or unwilling agent. I want to keep that in mind as we go through here. Um, and what I mean by that is sometimes people are working out for darkness without realizing that they're working out for darkness. And some people get very hateful, and people get very uh, vengeful against humans, and sometimes the humans don't have a clue on what they're doing, but they're being treated as if they're from the gates of hell themselves. So just, just keep that in mind. Um, Yahweh offers redemptive choices regardless of history and previous actions. We're going to see Yahweh interact with the people his people, and we're going to see him interact with the people that aren't his. And when he interacts with the people that aren't his, he interacts in a way that they would understand. Um, and we've seen that before. And uh, I just want to mention that these are stories that we're going through. These are stories that build the worldview that Paul and the apostles have. So when we're reading the letters, we're going to see stuff that comes right out of this, right out of this occasion. So the first thing I want to look at right now is I want to look at 2 Timothy before we dive into Exodus. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, and Paul is giving Timothy a warning. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who would creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in the mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Those two men are who we're going to talk about at the end of today, that Jonathan Jambres. Exodus doesn't give them a name. Paul gives them a name. 
Um, he's associating all of these attitudes, these things we're supposed to watch out for, he's, he's, he's associating it with these two false priests. We're going to talk about lector priests today and the role they had in Egypt. Um, but he's associating those things with that, with that false prophet, false teacher is what he's warning about. And so to be a false prophet and a false teacher, you are serving a different master. Does that make sense? Some people think prophes- false prophecies are people just getting things wrong. That happens. You get things wrong. But when the Bible talks about false prophecy, it's really talking about, and false teaching, it's talking about doctrines of demons and of other gods. That makes sense. Um, speaking of Paul battling with magicians. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This is Paul's journey here. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet. So right there again, we see this connection between sorcery and false prophet. Uh, named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, their leader, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Paul, Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith, that was the Elimus the magician. But Paul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul, then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So I'm just showing you that thousands of years later, about 2000, 1800, um, this is still the way that Yahweh is dealing with this stuff that we're going to talk about. This is still how Yahweh is dealing with the darkness and the, the prophets of darkness. Um, so this isn't just a one-off Bible story that's pretty cool to read as a kid and see on the flannel board. That's not how it is. Something, and it still goes on. Uh, a couple pictures of the throne room of Egypt. Um, we need to get a better projector because those are not very light. But anyway, just kind of give you a setting for when this is where this is going to take place. Uh, Exodus 5, let's get to the story. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And the Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Uh, the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past, but let them go and gather straw for themselves. For the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer a sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your own straw, 
wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? And then the foremen of the people of Israel came and they cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is what you say. Let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Now go and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them. And as they came out from Pharaoh, they said to them, Yahweh, look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses and Aaron did what they were supposed to do. Correct? They did exactly what they were supposed to do. And because they did what they were supposed to do, there was rebuttal from the other side. And sometimes we think that as soon as we start doing what we're supposed to be doing, everything is just going to align. Sometimes that's not the point. Sometimes you're fighting down a hallway for years to get to where you're supposed to be going, even though you're doing the right thing. I just, it's always been like that. There's no magical thing to say to just bring in that. Sometimes it's, sometimes there's instant deliverance of things. Sometimes it's just a fight. And I just want to encourage you, looking at Moses and Aaron, stinks to be them too. They're supposed to come back and lead these people out. And now these people don't even want to be around them. And all they're doing is listening to God. And so it's just, it's starting to get amped up. Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob, as El Shaddai, uh, and, and to Jacob, as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you out from slavery, from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who has brought you out of under the burdens of Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for possession. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Another reminder in those times of brokenness and everything, the word of God comes to you, and sometimes we just disregard it because our feelings are not in line to listen. 
And that's rough. And just another aspect of spiritual warfare here. When things are going south, sometimes we're still clinging, we're seeing the words of God, and we're not reacting to it, we're not accepting at it because of where we're at. And so Yahweh said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to Yahweh, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? But Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. So, Two chapters we just went through really quick to get to the fun. There's a lot going on there. What we're just seeing is an internal struggle. Now it's been announced to the Hebrews that their God is going to save the day. Everything is out. You're going to go to Pharaoh. We're going to make this happen. And so people are living harsh lives. It doesn't say how much time has passed during all of this. I don't know. But... um, I'm going to guess it was weeks. I don't know how, with Moses' status, I don't know if he could instantly have time with Pharaoh. I don't know. So, but now we're going to get to the, to the meat here. And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his, this land. That's a strange line there. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. What God is doing here, what Yahweh is doing here, is he's setting up a battle on the terms of Egypt. Who is Pharaoh? He is a god. They considered him a god. He is a god and a king. And Pharaoh has what? His own prophets and priests. So Moses is going to Pharaoh Part of the uncircumcised lips, a lot of people believe the saying of uncircumcised lips, really that's not anything to do with his talking. Uncircumcised lips, Moses is saying, I'm just a common man going to speak before the king. And so now Yahweh is raising him up saying, I will make you like he is in the minds and Aaron will be your prophet. That's what that is. It's not saying that Moses is a God, just so we can be clear. Okay. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to me. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, and when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as Yahweh commanded. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old. All right. I want to talk about the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh because some people have a hard time with that, with God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart is already against Yahweh. There's a little double play on words here with hardening the heart. If you know anything about your Egyptian mythology, when an individual dies, I'll just read it. The heart played an important role in the afterlife for Egyptians. In the weighing of the heart rites, the heart of the deceased person is put on a scale against the feather of the goddess Mat, who personifies order, truth, and what is right. If you find balance in the scale, you're good, 
and you're allowed to go on to the good place of the afterlife. If not, you go down to the devourer. Pharaoh was thought to be an incarnation of Horus and Ray, and therefore the heart of him was extremely light and equal, meaning he didn't have to worry about any of his actions in life because he's going to automatically weigh. There's a picture here of what they drew the process of Anubis sitting there with the scales to judge the dead. When Yahweh continually hardens the heart of Pharaoh and says that he's hardening the heart of Pharaoh, another translation is, I'm making his heart heavy. It's a play on words here to show that Pharaoh, who assumes he's in the good and will pass on in the afterlife as a god, Yahweh is saying, you don't have the ability to do that. I'm going to meet you where you're at. I'm I'm making your heart heavier. You won't balance the scale. Does that make sense? It's, it's It's an attack. The way that it's, it's, it's called a polemic, what they're doing is they're showing Yahweh is over these gods. Yahweh has the ability to decide that, not these other gods. And so that's the whole weighing the scale in the afterlife thing. So when he keeps hardening the heart of Pharaoh, he keeps making the heart heavy. That's that double connotation there. It also means what we, I mean, we, we take, some of this stuff enters our language, right? We talk about hardened hearts. We talk about heavy hearts, and these are all expressions that were used way back when. Um, So Yahweh is making a statement just in saying he's going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. I just thought that was kind of fun. I always wondered about that because it's like, okay, so Pharaoh doesn't have a chance because Yahweh's just doing that. I think Pharaoh had his chance. This is part of the judgment that's coming. Verse 8, Then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as Yahweh commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. All right, here's your Pokemon battle. Throw it on the staff, serpent comes out. Throw it on the staffs, more serpents come out. I want to point some stuff to the the original Hebrew words for these. So the first, when, when Aaron cast down his staff, he cast it down, and the word that they use for serpent is tanin, which is different than the word that the Egyptians, they give the Egyptian serpent, which is just nakash. Now, the difference is, tanin is usually, you use it for like a giant, large sea serpent monster. So when they're throwing it down, I have to believe that it was like some kind of awesome monster to behold. And then when the Egyptians did it, it says they threw down and they became Nakash, which is just normal snakes. So this idea that it's just this larger, could have been a dragon. Sometimes it's the tanin is the word used for dragon. This, this sweet, cool creature thing is going to eat up the normal snakes. And the other thing that you have to realize with this, it's kind of fun, is we'll, we'll, I'll talk about the lector priest here. Um, so this is the Jonas and the Jambres guy that Paul mentions. These two magicians that come in to duplicate uh, we'll talk a little bit about the lector priests with Egypt because these were Egypt's highest priests. Uh, they they kind of served a role of priest and prophet for Pharaoh, and they served in different temples dedicated to different gods. 
um, elector, peace, elector priest, which just means it's the priest that carries the book, was a priest in ancient Egypt who recited spells and hymns during temple rituals and official ceremonies. Such priests also sold their services to laymen, reciting texts during private, uh, I always get the magic word, opatropic rituals or at funerals. As such, they are made some of the most prominent practitioners of what the Egyptians called magic, which was they called it haku. In ancient Egyptian literature, lector priests are often portrayed as the keepers of the secret knowledge and the performers of amazing magical feats. They usually wore a sash, carried a wand or a staff, and they served in the different uh, temples devoted to Egypt's Ennead or their pantheon. Lector priests are also shaved. So here you go. This is an actual wood carving of a lector priest from like 3,800 years ago that is somehow endured. Uh, that's kind of what they look like. So they'd go completely, they'd shave completely down, no hair on their body. Part of the no hair on their body was the idea that they had to be ritually clean to serve in the temples of the gods. So they kept completely shaved. And uh, any kind of dirtiness, so they're, they're thinking lice, bugs, anything that's on you, that would make you unclean. That would make it so that you are not able to go in and serve your God. That's going to be important when we get through the, like, the plagues and what God does specifically with the plagues. So kind of keep that in mind. But there he is. That's what their average priests look like. Um, kind of creepy. Um, they wore a sash. That was it up on top. They carried a wand or a staff. So let's talk about the staff and the wand idea. The whole idea, and we have these in our culture now, we see them in fantasy books, all that stuff. The idea of a wand and staff, it's a very, very old idea. The staff or the wand, originally they were staffs, and then some people throughout history, another word was like wand something, and they would turn them into wands. Staffs were your magical focal point. So going all the way back to the earliest, like 45, 4,600 years ago with the Sumerians, the Sumerian sorcerers had their sorcerer's staff. So that image of like this old dude with a staff practicing magic and sorcery, thousands and thousands of years old, 6,000-something years old. That's like a thing. The staff was important because that's where the power went in and out and resided. So Moses has a staff, but what is Moses' staff? Yeah, it was just a shepherd's staff, Right? So we get, we get to see another play here on the staffs. So these guys have done all that they have. They've served their beings, different spiritual beings, to get their dark arts. They've, they have this staff that is made for magic. It is made for sorcery, specifically to do their bidding. And they're going against this shepherd who also has a staff, but it is not a magical staff. It is a staff for leading sheep. I think it becomes symbolic for leading the people of Israel. He has the staff with them all the time as he leads them out. And so you're seeing this power dynamic. That staff, this ordinary staff, to help the people and to serve Yahweh, not dedicated to anybody, Yahweh just uses this normal thing to circumvent entire systems of darkness. That's just kind of one of the cool things about the staff and the wand. The idea that... It is. That's Yahweh using the normal, using the people that are loyal to them, to him, to take care of all that other structured evil. And so that's what we see a little bit with this. So you have this idea. 
Yahweh produces a greater monster, and then when the monster eats their staves, it's like a breaking of their power because the power resided with them in their staffs. Does that make sense? So it's like you, you've, this is your first dealing with Yahweh, and he's already left you powerless. So obviously they're going to have to go make new staves, staves, and that's what they're going to do. Um, but see the dynamic there? So what we have going on is Yahweh has already declared judgment on the, on the priests, on Pharaoh, on the gods. And this is just the first part. Um, so yeah, there you go. That's your, the world's first Pokemon battle. Um, another, another piece, you got the little bald priest on the end going to talk to Pharaoh in his courtroom. Um, there are documents where throwing, throwing staffs down to turn them into snakes was a normal magician thing in Egypt to do. So it's just another example of Yahweh taking on something that's already in their culture to put himself above what's already going on in their culture. And uh, we're going to see, as, as in the next couple of weeks, we're going to get into the plagues. Everything has, everything has layers of battle. Like every, I don't know if they're all, I don't like really calling them all plagues. I think plague and I just think disease. Uh, they're referred to earlier as signs and wonders. As he goes through the, the ten signs and wonders, each of the signs and wonders has meaning for Egypt and it has meaning for specific gods. And so as we progress the next couple of weeks, we're going to get through all of that and we're going to see the very end of that battle through the, the signs and wonders. Exodus actually says, and with this, Yahweh had victory over the gods of Egypt. And so... It's important to know that we just, this, what we're in and when we interact with the world, there's nothing new underneath the sun. All this stuff has been going on. People serve these dark things all the time. They're still serving their dark things all the time. Yahweh has a plan, and he's taking care of things in the spiritual. We need to be loyal in the physical. And if we do this, we'll see victory. Jesus' power has already rendered them ashamed, um, according to Paul. And it's just a matter of walking out the loyalty and doing what we're told to do. So just as we close today, Yahweh is up to bat for the Hebrews. Uh, physically, he's also dealing with the spiritual side of things. Uh, remember his resolve with the first upstart nation of Babel. So we already talked about what happened with the first Babel with the Tower of Babel and Yahweh putting an end to that because they had gotten to a point where they, they were going to become like a god. And Egypt is at this point. This is during the golden, the golden Age of Egypt. So this is not a weak or early Egypt by any man, manner at this point. And so there's that going on. So you've got to remember you, you, have, you have a national, you have a political national battle God is calling his national people out from the nation of Egypt. He's calling his covenant people out. So it's a people versus people thing. The nation level, then you have the spiritual level. There's just lots of layers going on. Um, we're going to see cycles of humanity and cycles of Yahweh's response that we will continue to see throughout the Bible. We already talked about how he's already referring to Egypt when he's talking about the, the bricks or the the mortar and straw, those are the same exact words that they're using for building when they were building Babel. So that connection is already pointing you there. But 
just kind of humanity does the same stupid stuff over and over and over and over and over again. And it's just we need to understand that, that Yahweh's response is the same over and over and over and over and over again. So when we see certain things happen and sometimes we wonder why it's happening and we think about like, well, that could never happen to here because this is probably just going to happen again. All right, so there you go. There's the beginning. I like Egypt. I like the plagues. I don't want the plagues, but I like reading about the plagues. And uh, there's some actually some really interesting archaeology with the plagues coming up, which is I didn't realize was there. So I just want to pray and dismiss for the day. Lord, Yahweh, we love you. We thank you for setting the standard of what, to, what we can expect from you. We thank you that you listen to your people and that the cries reach you. Lord, you are the, the one above all. And we recognize that. So Lord, just help us to do what you've asked us to do. To not be afraid to say the things that you've asked us to say. And Lord, give us protection in the world that we live in. That spiritual armor, Lord. I just ask that you'd be with us throughout the week. Lord, uh, Give us favor in the endeavors we do. We thank you, Jesus, for putting that final nail in the power structure that exists in the spiritual. We can't do what we're asked to do without you. And we love you and we truly appreciate you, Jesus. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.